0: Everybody is not going to want to birth at home, but many people do not want to birth in the hospital. And my my catchphrase is that the same way there's a liquor store in every other corner in the hood, that's how we should have access to birth centers and you know clinics and you know quality care.
1: Hola, hello, bienvenido, and welcome to the Clear Birth Podcast. For those of you returning listeners, thanks for being here. And for my new listeners, I'm your host, Annette Perel. Today, we are speaking with Nubia Martin. Nubia Earth Martin is a community birth worker and founder, president of Birth from the Earth, Inc., a nonprofit organization steeped in education and empowerment, providing a variety of health and wellness services. Nubia holds a master's degree in midwifery and a bachelor's degree in sociology. She is a childbirth educator, birth and postpartum doula and lactation consultant. The legacy and lineage of the grand midwives runs deep throughout Nubia Martin. She sees midwifery not as a profession, but as a way of life, and a rite of passage welcome Nubia how are you
0: greetings welcome so happy to be here thank you
1: how have you been holding up with COVID well <laughs>
0: I'm a mother of five so it's always non-stop um, it's just been a
1: little bit more nonstop, but holding up pretty well yeah okay and that's good that's good I'm so glad to have you here and as a point of clarity you are my first guest who I don't know personally and have not met oh. before <laughs> so
0: thank well, you. I feel like I know you from our phone conversation, my exactly. secret like spirits for yes,
1: sure. So definitely. Thank you definitely. for having me. No, it's my pleasure and my honor. I'm so, I'm like really excited for people to hear all about you and I'll just start and jump into the show and I start with a few questions at first and then we just take it from there. So, okay. What career did you want to do when you were in grade school, high school and college? Hmm,
0: okay. So when I was in grade school, I think I always thought about being an actress. That was always my thing, full of drama as a Mm -hmm. child. (laughs) And when I got into, I'd say, high school, that's when I became more interested in birth work, actually. Um, But looking back, I was fascinated by my mother's copy of Ina May Gaskin's Spiritual Midwifery. Um, She had that book on her shelf. And as a child, I remember being fascinated by the birth stories and I would actually sneak and hide and look at the different, you know, pictures and all of that because, you know, they were giving birth. So I thought it was probably taboo, but I was fascinated by it and likewise in high school there was a parenting class that was supposed to be for um expectant teen moms i was not an expecting teen mom but i wanted to take this class because i was just intrigued about wanting to know how to care for my future children so i think it's always been birth work on some level
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Similarly, I had an interaction with a book. My sister had um, Our Bodies, Ourselves when I was ten, mm-hmm. and I started reading that book and asking my mother questions, and she was <laughs> not. She was not having it. She told me to put the book down. She told me to stop worrying about it. I walked around with this book the entire time, like wow. for days, just reading yeah. everything. And she, was like my mother's Panamanian. <laughs> and I'm the youngest of three girls, so you already know okay. that yes. there was no conversation of like anything I like to say from below the neck. So right. that wasn't happening. <laughs> so, so when you were in high school and you you were fascinated by it and you took that course, that was really interesting. So what did what did the course cover?
0: So I remember the um, instructor asking me, you know, are you pregnant? And I said no. And he said, well, why would you want to take this class? And I said, well. I hope to be a mother someday, so I'd want to know the skills of caring for a baby. So it was pretty much the typical, you you know, get a baby that you're supposed to care for for a couple of weeks. Um, we weren't as fancy as the ones that automatically cry that they have nowadays, you know, yeah, so we yeah. had to kind of stimulate all of that. But it was really just about caring for the basic needs and preparing for parenthood, which I thought was um, amazing. And it was an Alexa's class that not many people took, but I thought it should have been a mandatory class that everybody takes to prepare yourself for,
1: you know, the rite of passage of being a parent. So you had to have a baby with you the entire time or just for the class? The entire time. The
0: entire time. So the same way, like, you know, you wouldn't be able to just put the baby, you know, in a locker and go on everywhere. You had to get a carrier. I remember, um, I was going to humanities, which is all the way on 18th street in Manhattan. So taking the train to uh-huh. school and the looks I would get because the baby is, you know, strapped to you yeah. and all was really bad, you know, people would look at you like with that look of shame and you almost want to tell them this is just a baby for a class, but then putting yourself in the mind frame of, well, this is some people's reality that they have to deal with. So that was interesting to sit with that and see how society, you know, perceives, um, Teen, you know, parenthood. Yeah. Um. Interestingly enough, when I first started teaching childbirth classes, I taught three classes to teen expectant moms that Planned parenthood because mm-hmm. I felt like this is still somebody who's about to become a parent. This is still yes. somebody who needs to be nurtured, regardless of their age. Mm-hmm. So that was really important to me, and I think that experience in that class is what led me to wanting to do that
1: for teen expectant mothers and, yeah. and teen expectant um, people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think you're so right in that being a teen mom back then was just perceived as this awful thing that you know happened to you. I had um, a guest on previous my previous show, the last one, Shala Konomi, and she spoke about Hmm. her mother gave birth to her when she was 13. Wow! And how her mother told her when she went into labor, her mother did just told her to go to the bathroom or, um, and tell her when her water broke. So her mother labored for hours on her own and then yeah. going to the hospital and was shamed even further by people yeah. in the hospital. So yeah, it definitely. It's so it, it awoke in something inside of you, realizing carrying this yeah. baby around that. This is how they are perceived. And it's great mm-hmm. that you kind of taught them. And, and how did you get into like, teaching childbirth education and then thinking yeah. to getting with Planned Parenthood in that regard? Yes. Yeah, so
0: it was definitely the um, birth journeys of my first two children. So like I said, I have five.
1: Mm-hmm. And with
0: my first two, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, I just knew that I wanted to have a natural birth. Um, I didn't really know much about home birth at that time. So I had my first two in the hospital, had natural births, but the experience was definitely lacking the level of, um, care and spirituality that I would have wanted to bring to that. So after having my second hospital experience, that's what led me to looking into becoming a childbirth educator because I started doing extensive research because I said to my husband, I definitely want more children. But I don't want to do it like that. I want to do it differently. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the resources that I started coming across, I said to myself, wow, if I didn't know these things existed, there are probably many families that don't know. So, that's Mm -hmm. what led me to wanting to just teach childbirth classes. And when I started out, um, I just went to the local clinics out here in Yonkers and asked them if they had any classes in place. They said all the classes that were being taught were at the local hospital. And I had taken that childbirth class, and it mm-hmm. really didn't prepare me for birth. It prepared me to be a good patient in their hospital. <laughs> Definitely. And I was like, like um, yeah, so um, when I got to Planned Parenthood of Yonkers and asked them, they didn't have any classes in place. And I said, well, can I just leave my cards? You know, I'll teach I'll some classes for free. And it was all expectant team mothers, actually, who reached out to me. So they did mm-hmm. a nice group class, um, and they were amazing. They were so, you know inquisitive they really wanted to you know know well how painful is it going to be what's going to happen you know they were really really um attentive and it was nice to see them kind of bouncing ideas off of each other and then unfortunately even giving them all that information a lot of them still had horrible experiences at the local hospital and that's what led me to becoming a birth doula because i realized it's not enough to just arm somebody with that information mm-hmm. you sometimes have to be there to advocate for them to provide comfort measures so that was how the natural progression went from childbirth educator into birth doula
1: so where did you take your birth doula training and how was that for you yeah so i did my childbirth
0: educator birth and postpartum doula training through the aviva institute which was no oh. longer in existence but they were amazing it was um, online, but then you had some in-person things that you had to do in your community. Um, you had to attend a certain amount of births to um, make sure this was really the field that you wanted to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was nice because even though it was online, which again, I reminded you, is not my thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to, um, you know, there was still a sense of community and there were people from all over. So it wasn't like it was just New York. Um, so kind of learning about what the challenges were in different people's communities, how they were overcoming those challenges was interesting. And it really made me start to look at what was lacking in my immediate area. So looking at the high C-section rate at our local hospital, um, in Yonkers, we only have one hospital where you can get birth. Um, so that was an issue because all of the clinics are set up to usher you into delivering there. And that was one of the things that I wanted people to understand, that you always have a choice of where you'd like to go to give birth, regardless of where you receive your prenatal care. So Mm -hmm. that was a big eye-opener to me, because I probably would not have chose that hospital (laughs) for my first Mm -hmm. two births, had I known that.
1: Yeah, I find that that's the biggest barrier for a lot of people, is that knowing that they have choice. I I remember Mm -hmm. when I first started as a doula, a lot of people would say, I'm going to my local, uh, the hospital is just two blocks from me. Like that was... The best thing Closer is not always so better.
0: Right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> and they yeah. discovered that the hard way, unfortunately. Yes. But yeah. um so you had already had two children mm-hmm. by the time you became a doula. So how was it to support someone through that process the first time you supported your birth a birth? The
0: first time was rough. Um we were at Sound Shore Hospital in uh New Rochelle. And I remember this was a friend of mine and she was progressing really quickly, which I, you know, I thought was amazing. And then at one point she was like, Oh my gosh, this, this feels different. This feels really, really um, painful. I don't know what's going on. And I said, okay, maybe you're transitioning and, you know, trying to use yes. all the language that I just learned and, you know, comfort her. And she said, no, this is my third child. Like I know what this is, this does not feel right. And then her doctor came in and said to the nurse, Um, How come you haven't turned the Pitocin up again? And she said, wait, what? You gave me Pitocin? She didn't even know. They hadn't even told her. Wow. And that was what changed, you know, everything for her. So I remember her saying, how can you just give me something you didn't even tell me? And at that time, I really didn't know enough about Pitocin. I knew the the medical lingo behind it, but I didn't know how it reacts in a woman's body. Yes. So witnessing that was was hard. And then um, when... Because things went from just the natural progression of her having a pretty precipitous labor on her own to mm-hmm. now pitocin being thrown in. The next thing you know, it was, they were saying, you know, you have to push, you're, you're fully dilated, the baby's right there. And her mind had just not caught up to where her body was. Mm-hmm. So she was refusing to push. And I remember the nurse got up on the bed and pushed on her belly. And I was just like, oh my God, yeah. you know? So it was very traumatic. And um I was not expecting that um i had to do a lot of you know postpartum work with her to kind of process what happened um and explain to her that it wasn't right you know what happened and it made me kind of feel helpless because i didn't have the language at that time to know to say to the nurse um what are you doing you know that's not even something that we do (laughs) you know um how do you give somebody something without their consent all of those things. So that you was, touch a, was an body. eye opener. Yeah. Right. Right. So that was an eye opener for me. Yeah. Um, made me realize that it's not just about, you know, rubbing somebody's back, like, you know, depending yeah. on where you are, you know, there's yeah. a lot that goes into that. And you have to build up resiliency for yourself. Um, if you're going to be going into some of these settings, um, because it can be, it can be traumatic for sure. Yeah.
1: I, I know that, for i'm the third child and my mother when i had asked her about her birth with me her mm-hmm. the only thing that she remembered was that they cut her and that's yeah. all she said and she was like they cut me and when i would ask her why she she had no idea why you wow. know, and then after I became a doula, I realized, oh, because they were practicing episiotomies back then. Right. So, of course,
0: that's practicing practice. How to suture. And yeah. how to
1: suture. And on a third time mom to give an episiotomy for, I was no bigger than my middle sister. So wow. it was just unnecessary. unnecessary and she had no idea. So growing up, right. that's all I knew about my birth was that they cut her and yeah. not understanding why. But I so remember- I can yeah,
0: I remember when I was in midwifery school and we had to do our clinical training and, um, I was at Jacoby Medical Center and the 24 babies that I caught while I was there, I was very proud that all of the moms were intact because yes. I wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm a hands poised midwife. I was mm-hmm. not, you know, all up in there. And I remember when we were doing our evaluations that that was one of their critiques. Oh, you haven't had enough experience in suturing. I said, well, what would you have me to cause a tear for somebody just to have the suturing you know i said i thought the goal is to make sure that you know they're intact and, and we don't have to do that if somebody obviously has the tear that needs to be repaired i would do it but i couldn't understand like why that would even be a thing you know we practice on yes. modules and all that but i'm not going to inflict something on somebody just to get you know experience so I Remember that was also kind of shocking to me that that was kind of
1: the critiques. Like, oh, you
0: haven't had enough tears. I'm like, isn't, isn't that the goal? That's not the goal, yeah,
1: <laughs> okay. right. Yeah, so you now we we're I jumped way ahead. That. I know, no, that's <laughs> it. no, you did it. perfect. It's a perfect okay. segue because you, you, you talked about childbirth education leading to doula work and then doula yeah. work. From doula work leading to postpartum work and now Mm -hmm. into midwifery. So how long after you were a doula did you go into midwifery? Right. So I started doing doula
0: work in 2008. And then I realized after serving as a birth doula, um, a postpartum doula, lactation consultant, that, okay, You, you want to be a midwife. This is what, you know, you, you've wanted since you fell in love with that book years ago. Yeah. Go for it. So I'm in New York, so I had to look into, so I want to do the CNM track or the CM track. So, um, for those who aren't aware, sure. Right. CNM is a certified nurse midwife. So that means you have a background in nursing before you go into midwifery school. Mm -hmm. Um, CM is a certified midwife. So that means you have a background in a different, um, area. As an undergrad degree, and then you go on to a graduate degree in midwifery. So the midwifery education is the same. It just depends on what your background was before going to midwifery school. So if somebody is going for a CNM, that means they have an undergrad degree in nursing. I have an undergrad degree in sociology. Um, so I applied to SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. Got mm-hmm. accepted the first time that I applied, which I hear oh. is not, is not, um, common for some, you know, some, you sometimes you apply and apply, so I took that as a sign that okay, I guess I'm supposed to go. I started in the fall of 2014 and um, I'll say what I wish I had known prior to starting midwifery school was that just like every other system in this country there's a certain level of um, biases and um, systemic racism that comes along with that I naively thought, well, this is midwifery. This is yes. caring for women and we're families. This is not going to happen here. I just, I went in very, um, rose glasses for sure. And then was rudely, um, you know, like, Oh, oh no, we're still in America. Okay. This is still, you know, and it was hard. And I realized that many of the students of color, um, who started with me did not continue. Um, they felt that it was too traumatic for them. Um, some left to other programs, some to different career paths. I was like, I'm sticking it out because this is what I want to do. And for me, this is not a profession. This is my ancestry. This is my lineage. This is my birthright. And, um, I was going to do whatever I needed to do to complete and, um, be able to serve my community. So, you know, long story short, I finished in May of 2018, um, and you know what i've come to understand is that there is an intentional suppression of black midwives um which is reflective in the fact that the profession is 95 percent white right now um which is also reflective or correlates to the fact that we have a high maternal mortality and morbidity rate for black women the lack of providers that look like you that um, know what it is like to live day in, day out as a black woman in America, um, who would then not inflict those same biases on somebody else because they know what that feels like. That is sorely lacking. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a big eye opener, but it was, um, it was a motivator for me. Yeah. Um, and I really try to encourage anybody, especially those who maybe been to work for a while and feel, They want to go deeper. I'm like, yes, do it. Because while we definitely need, you know, birth workers of color in all facets, um, I feel that we definitely need more midwives of color. So I always encourage anybody, um, who feels like they want to go a little bit further with it to pursue it. And to that end, I created, um, a, like a support system called Kidata. Kidata is the Swahili word for little sister. So for anybody who's looking to get into midwifery, I'm like, you definitely need somebody to be like, okay, this is, look out for this. And when this happened, you know, because if I had had that, I feel like I wouldn't have been as traumatized as I was going through the program. Um, and what I got from a lot of people when I was going through it, um, older midwives, um, black midwives who had gone through the same program before was, oh yeah, that's just what you have to go through. I went through that 30 years ago too. Yep. You just have to tap it out. And I was like, um, that's not okay. Really? Yeah, that's not okay. And I vowed that, you know, I would not let that happen to somebody else. It's like not on my watch, you know, if I can help it, I'm not only going to support somebody through the process, but call it out when it's wrong
1: and hold people accountable. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit so we can, Mm -hmm. you know, there aren't that many midwives of color. Right. Currently. But I think I saw somewhere online that that nationwide, there's only like 10% of all of the midwives are midwives of color. But yes. prior to births going into hospitals, yes. this talk, talk about of the history, <laughs> prior to yes. that, it was 100% in our community, Us. women of color who right. were supporting other women of color through this process. And they learned it was from granny midwives. They learned from... Right their midwife in their town or their grandmother Mm -hmm. or their aunt. But it was a lineage of work that they had done throughout this in order to do this work because it was brought over from the slave ships, right? Because they didn't, they'd have us, they'd have us believe that we were just slaves, but they didn't take just slaves. They took doctors,
2: they took took educators.
1: That's right. So the midwives then came over here and became the midwives for the slave owners to deliver mm-hmm. all of the slave babies. So and what to they deliver knew, the slave masters' babies too. Would, exactly. It was
0: for everyone. And to nurse their
1: babies too. And to, yes, to <laughs> right. like nurses to them as well. Yes. yes. And so then when doctors decided that this was a profession that they wanted to get into, that's right. when they turned around and said, we're going to start pushing the granny midwives right. out. Right. And they systemically the term- did that. That's right.
0: And the term granny was used to kind of, you know, diminish their skill set. So we now exalt them to grand midwives. That's yes. what we um we, we use that term um to give them, you know, just their their proper honor and due respect. Um but for sure I would say that it was, yes, it was intentional. So, you know, the same way that the maternal mortality and morbidity rate disparities, I also feel are intentional. It goes back to our history here. So during our enslavement, right, um, during our bondage, black women were a commodity because there was a law that if I was purchased and I then bore children, all of my children were now property. So if I could be purchased for, I don't know, $300, right, but now I give birth to 10 children, that's 11 for the price of one for that slave master. So they wanted us to create in rapid succession. They wanted to prove that we could have babies back to back and still be out in the fields or still be in their homes cooking for them and caring for them. Um, they wanted to prove that we could bear certain amounts of pain to justify um, inflicting this type of um, bleeding on us. So that is where people like J. Marion Sims, you know, came in with, I can do a surgery on a black woman and she can survive it without anesthesia. So of course, yeah, she can you know, have children back-to-back and still go out and work for you. Um, so that type of, you know, mentality has always been um, put on us. And then once slavery was, quote-unquote, abolished, now we're no longer a commodity. So yeah. now it's how do we prevent you from procreating, right? Yeah. And not only how do we prevent you from procreating, but how do we slander the hands and the heart and the skills of the women who have been... Um, protecting these pregnancies because no, it is not healthy to have children back to back like that and to be worked to the bone. Um, but you had these grand midwives who knew healing herbs, who knew the laying on of hands, who knew the strength of spirit, who also knew how to use herbs to prevent pregnancies. sometimes yes. when they knew that, okay, no, if this woman has another baby right now, back to back, this is going to, this will be the death of her. So yes. it was protective work. It was passed on work. It was, like you said, our lineage. And this was something that they did not understand, but that also they feared because they saw it as power. So when the whole slander happened and, oh, they're, you know, these granny midwives are dirty and they're unskilled and they're uneducated, right? That was the key thing. They're uneducated. You need to go to you know a nursing school. You need to um, go to one of our schools and learn our ways. But when birth moved to hospitals, there was a lot of good death because they didn't even know the skills of hand washing, which yes. I think everybody knows now, right? Now, <laughs> yes. Everyone is here. Now, know, everybody knows. For 20 seconds. Right. But we've been doing these things. You know, we knew that you don't go from caring for somebody who's sick to catching a baby without cleansing and not just cleansing your hands cleansing your aura cleansing your spirit being ready to receive a life you know being that that's it's a very spiritual thing and that was taken away and you know it it made it very difficult for people who didn't have money who didn't have means you know to be able to attend these schools um and that is what's still continuing to happen today so that is why the profession not only in america is majority white. But across, you know, internationally, this is yeah. an issue.
1: Um, so there is an intentional suppression of Black midwives across the world. It's like, no, it's okay if they if they talk. Um, we've had children on the show and we've heard them before. And yeah, that's them, that's so. my daughter. <laughs> Hi. She, this is
0: her and she's the little midwife. So. Oh. <laughs>
1: so she's great, you
0: starting early. five own. in November, but oh, yes. Well, yes. She's starting early. She's been saying she's a midwife for about a year now, so I'm not going to tell her she's not. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Dang,
1: that's definitely so, true. She's learning.
0: Yeah, what I was saying was it's not just in America, it's internationally, and there is a direct connection to seeing how these numbers are, are continuing to rise for maternal deaths for Black women and the lack of black midwives across the globe. Um, So until we recognize that is an issue and, you know, topple these systems that are intentionally suppressing, um, you know, black midwifery, black birth workers, we're going to continue to have this problem, which, you know, means that we have to take this into our own hands. It's an SOS situation for sure.
1: That is definitely one of the things that has been drawing me more and more to midwifery and finally this year making the leap of going back to school and Mm -hmm. finishing but what i thought that is also interesting i just started reading um i forget which one because there are a bunch of them one of the books on reproductive justice and and like you mentioned that there was this this push all this suppression of making sure that women now of color do not have children but then even mm-hmm. before that I, was, the exact quote escapes me but it was something to the event of like before your children were bore your father's name right the father's name mm-hmm. and yeah. they were considered of the father but once they realized that for slavery they did not want that would they did not want them to inherit anything so then they turned around and changed it and made it so that you were of your mother
0: exactly because most of the you know children were fathered by the slave masters right so they didn't want to
1: one acknowledge
0: that right um that goes into like a whole another conversation about white guilt right and (laughs) but you know but not wanting to yes have them inherit their names inherit their um property inherit their money that was Made it off the backs of okay. you know of mm-hmm. us anyway, um, but also that way the father, even if he was not a slave holder, could not claim rights to his children in case the slave master wanted to sell them off or do whatever they wanted, you know, um, with his child. So yes, that law was put in place to protect their their property. Property, so
1: and and then when it came to the midwives, as you had mentioned, um, not being able to go to school, the ones that were taught to go to school, um, that were able to afford to go to school rather, Mm -hmm. um, then had to wear uniforms. They had Mm -hmm. to, I I forgot the name of the grand midwife they wrote a book about, but I remember her saying that they did not want them to use any of the medicine that they knew and they had to carry around a book. To log Mm -hmm. the events, and so I don't know if you're talking
0: about Margaret Charles Smith. I'm not sure.
1: Yes, Yes. Margaret. I just finished reading her book about a month ago. Mm -hmm. Isn't it incredible? And how she was like. So all we did was carry around two books because they would do checks on them to see if they had the book. So they would then have they would have their book where they took their notes and had their herbs and talked about the healing, Mm -hmm. and then had the book that they had to show them. Like yes, we're keeping notes in your book too, in order to keep the the heritage of the grand midwife right. a lot
0: and they had to have a bag to go and a bag to show Just, so a bag exact- with all the proper things in it but then the bag that they would really use with their herbal remedies and all of this that they had to hide because this was deemed you know witchcraft or you know some hoodoo
1: stuff that doesn't work in the yeah yep. and so. What's amazing to me is that we have throughout history, and even in movies, right? We have this um, sense there were some things that followed but never were explained, right? In, in the sense right. of the grand, like when it came to birth, it was always in the movies, go boil water, mm-hmm. right? Those that was always, and no one understood that, and now bringing it back to. They didn't even know to wash their hands, but that is exactly what they were using to sterilize instruments and also to cleanse themselves, like you had mentioned. Yep. Yep. And so now birth went into hospitals and then they discovered this the hard way after many deaths. Um, So as you as you mentioned, while you were in midwifery school and and learning how to navigate now seeing these traumas and having some of your colleagues and classmates drop out because it was too traumatic Mm -hmm. and you discovering like, this is, this is not going to break me. I'm not going to let this deter me from following this path because I know how important it is. Can you speak to, you know, once you graduated and you became a midwife, bringing that into practice with the work that you do how was that received by the community because now we're going back we're going yeah. you have the education that like right. i forgot who oh, Sh- shayla said on 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 her on her episode her grandmother used to say steal the white man's education right so now mm-hmm. you have that education and right you're using it but then you also have your wisdom how was that perceived by the community
0: right i mean i knew the whole time that i was in the free school that i wanted to go directly into home birth. I knew I did not want to work in any of these hospitals. I also knew that it wasn't like I was going to graduate one day and start a midwifery practice the next day. Uh So I worked with many different home birth midwives who have been, you know, working in this field, working in home birth for 10, 15, 20 years, because I wanted, you know, that wisdom. That was what I did not get in school. We got a lot of the clinical, we got a lot of the didactic, but Uh that passing on that, you know, oral tradition, yeah. that learning by, you know, doing, honing those hand skills, I knew that was something that I had to kind of sit at the feet of these midwives, um, you know, observe them in, in their elements um, when they felt ready saying, hey, why don't you, you know, jump in and catch this one? These, you know, how many babies, but, you know, we, we trust you, the families trust you. So it was a na- natural progression for me, seeing different people's styles of how, you know, you navigate. The system but still keep your traditions you know in place Um, that was really important to me Um, so there were a few midwives that I had the honor of working with and just soaking up you know their knowledge um, which really solidified okay yes I definitely do not want to be in the hospital and also just knowing that if you're experiencing a low-risk healthy pregnancy you're actually safer at home than in the hospital I want to um, amplify that, that information for people so that it becomes more of the norm because that was the norm for us for many years.
1: Yeah. I, and I think I, for me as a doula, when I speak with clients about midwifery and midwives and having choice, I always get the, for my first, I'll go into <laughs> the hospital. Yeah. And my response is always, speak to a home birth midwife just have a Mm -hmm. conversation because i believe that what they think a midwife comes to birth with they have no clue that she is as educated and as skilled as an ob but she does not do surgery that's like the only thing that she doesn't do and you know i i have a girlfriend who says and i love this saying you don't go to the hardware store for oranges (laughs) right right that's and right. so like you're mentioning, if you are, if you are, what are the parameters for being low risk in order to have okay. a high
0: So I mean, generally you just have to be having a healthy pregnancy. There are three things, main things that can complicate a pregnancy and potentially make them um, high risk. So the main ones would be um, hypertension, high blood pressure that's unresolved. Mm-hmm. um gestational diabetes that's not well managed okay and anemia that is not resolved however those three things in, in my process and my opinion and my experience can be corrected through diet and herbs if right. they're able to be caught early or even better if you're able to work on them preconception but i know that's not always the case mm-hmm. but um especially with hypertension um Trying to get to the root cause of what is what's triggering this hypertension and for black women it's often stress yes. So that is one of the first things that I would ask. What are some of your stressors? Um, there are techniques that can help to not only address the root cause of the stress but also to you know stimulate the somatic nerve endings to release you know hormones that are going to come and bring down your stress levels um, There are herbs that will help with high blood pressure um you know dandelion is excellent you know for high blood pressure so there would be a certain um you know lifestyle changes and then certain herbal recommendations to help regulate the blood pressure so if we can get that you know regulated then that's no longer a risk factor for gestational diabetes i really talk to people about it's not just do you eat a lot of candy or sweets it's what things turn to sugar in our bodies right so white rice, white bread. So I want them to tell me what their diet is typically like. Um, you can have brown rice instead of white rice. You you know want to make sure that you're eating these things in moderation. You want to make sure that you're eating lots of dark green, leafy veggies, that you're having um, carbs and healthy fats in you know the proper proportion. So we're able to correct those things as well. With anemia, I want to explain to them always why, if you are anemic, going into giving birth, that can be dangerous because we know you're going to lose some blood, you know, in the process. If you were to lose a lot of blood and you're already going in with your hemoglobin and hematocrit levels very low, that could be dangerous. So we want those to come up. So I explain, you know, hemodilution, which means now you're pumping blood for two people. So you're going to see a, a natural decrease in that. So how do we bring it back up to the normal levels? Darkly leafy veggies, um, the, the liquid off of those um, greens that we're going to cook. Um, nettles, yellow black, um, alfalfa, blackstrap molasses—all of these things that we know. Um, if you're going to take a liquid iron supplement, taking it with orange juice because that's going to increase absorption. Avoiding dairy because that's going to deplete, you know the story. So you want to educate people, not just throw an iron pill at them because iron pills make people complicated. They're yes. not going to take them. No. And if they don't understand the importance of getting their, their hemoglobin and hematocrit levels up, they're really not going to take them. So you want people to be an integral part of their own care. You want them to understand the implications behind what they do or don't do. Then people are more apt to, um, you know, be quote unquote compliant. I hate when they say, oh, a patient was non-compliant. I'm like, well, did you explain to them what yes. they're complying to? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how exactly. do you somebody to be compliant if you're just telling them, Here's a script. Take this. Well, what am I taking this for? It makes me constipated, so I'm not going to take it. But what happens if I don't? What happens if I don't correct this? So those are the three main things. And there's also um, a herbal protocol for preventing preeclampsia, which I think is something that black women tend to deal with, you know, more um, than other um, than other groups of people. So these are things that early in pregnancy, I want to educate people about and make
1: sure that their diets are, and their lifestyle is reflecting, um, keeping the pregnancy as healthy as possible. Okay, it's wonderful. And so I, I mentioned that that's, you know, what's the, what are the barriers? Because they, they don't understand um, mm-hmm. uh, what a midwife brings. Yeah. The other one is, what do we do about the pain? The pain? If I want an epidural at home. So we don't do epidurals
0: at home. So that is one of the things that I explain to people all the time. No C-sections, no epidurals. However, when you are in your own environment, right? when you feel safe, when you feel comforted, um, that amazing hormone oxytocin is in full effect right? Um, oxytocin is that hormone that's present when we make love, when we laugh, when we give birth, when we breastfeed our babies. Um, and when that is on board, there are natural endorphins that are being sent out to your body that not only help your labor progress, but almost for some people give you a euphoric you know, feeling, mm-hmm. right? Where they, they have a pleasurable birth experience yeah. um, as opposed to one that's painful. And I think our bodies really follow our minds. So if we think, oh my God, this is going to be the most painful thing in the world. It's most likely going to be the most painful thing in the world because Mm you've conditioned yourself Mm -hmm. to believe that. But if you know that, You know, it cannot be stronger than you because this is power that's coming from you, right? And this is also pain with a purpose, right? It is bringing you closer to your baby. So it's what do you do during the contraction? What do you do during that wave? What do you do when it's beginning to start? You start breathing, right? What do you do when it gets Mm -hmm. to a climax? you ride that wave as opposed to fighting it. Because if you fight a wave, you're going to go under. Yeah. If you tense up, you're going to make everything more painful. The progress is going to be, you know, prolonged. Um, so having a doula, of course, I tell people whether you're going to be at home, um, in a birth center, hospital, you want to have a doula. And people always ask, well, if I have a midwife, why would I No, you want to have a doula and a mm-hmm. midwife or a doula and OB, whatever. But you want to have a doula on board because the doula, in my opinion, is connecting with that mother, right? She's supporting that mom emotionally, physically, spiritually. Um, you know, that is that is what you you need to kind of get through. And I also explain to people that it's not continuous pain, right? Yes. It's with the contraction. So that is really important for people to have an understanding of that, that it's not going to be this one long continuous, you know, um, painful event but it's how you get into a rhythm with your own body and what can you do at the height of labor. Maybe your contraction is lasting a minute, a minute and a half. So what can you do for a minute and a half to keep your body nice and calm? You can sing, you can breathe, you can hum, you can dance, you can use counter pressure. There's so many things that you can do. Um, And when you're in an environment where adrenaline is not on board, adrenaline and and oxytocin cannot coexist. So if you're in an environment where you don't feel safe, Machines are beeping, bright lights are overhead, people are coming in and out, people are examining you without asking, right? That is going to get adrenaline on board where that fight or flight reflex comes in. And yes, things are going to be very painful because your body is sending off alarm bells. Get me out of here, get this baby out of of me as opposed to let me get into my body. So I think for the pain, you know, that is something that when you talk to somebody about what to expect and how the environment is really going to either increase that intensity or bring it down, um, that people have a better understanding of, Figuring out how they can deal with, um, you know, the pain or the power, like I have yeah. to call it. Um, and then also, you know, knowing that if you're gonna be at home or, or even any setting, you wanna use all five of your senses. What I want the room to smell like. What I want it to sound like, you know? Um, what do I want to be looking at? Do I want to have you know a, a picture that's inspiring to me? Um, do I want to have some aromatherapy oils going? Do I want to have music playing, ocean sounds, drumming, silence? You know, really start making yeah. it your own. Um, that that really that helps. Um, in midwifery, I feel like the same way for doula work, you, your, the mother is choosing the doula. That baby chooses the midwife, right? So that baby communicates to the mother, look, this is who I need to to catch me, right? So it's more of a connection with the baby, but a good midwife um, is understanding that it's mother-baby, right? You're still caring for the mother, Mm -hmm. but it's really tuning in and communing with that baby. What is that baby communicating? You know, because there are four things that we're looking at, right? There are four Ps that they call it of labor. So there is the um the passenger which is the baby right there is the pelvis which is the mom's you know actual body and how the baby kind of navigates through that there is the power you know the contractions and how strong they are and you know, how effective they are. And then there's the psyche of the mother. So Mm -hmm. if you're thinking of all four of those things, you have to understand the connection between mother baby and also the extended family. What are they putting in mom's psyche? Are they on board? Do they feel comfortable with the process? So you have to incorporate the entire family um, or her entire support system if you want to have, you know, that experience where she can have a euphoric birth. Mm -hmm.
1: That's amazing. I I never heard of the four Ps before. That's really that really puts a lot into in perspective and i just loved the way you described how the whole process works in the sense of like yes you choose your doula but your baby is choosing your midwife right and paying mm-hmm. ascension or how or your provider right because if right. there's a breach that can't be delivered vaginally then that is also an issue um right and then that's, there's something going on in that respect as well and we have to listen to baby mm-hmm. in that respect, even when we try versions and they don't don't work. what do, Sometimes what do you the reason? Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Our little midwife assistant. Hi. Yes. <laughs> what do you love the most about being a midwife?
0: Oh, that's a,
1: You know it's
0: such a um, multifaceted thing. Um, yes. I love the activism part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do because I think that's really important. I tell anybody, if you're going to get into this work, know that there's politics behind it. There's, you know, activism, advocacy work, but I do, I love the activism. I love the idea of being able to, um, take power into your own hands. And in, in mm-hmm. a sense, in terms mm-hmm. of then going on to empower families with knowledge, like yeah. arming them with factual information so that they can make the best decision for them. And, You know, taking the ego out of it. It's not my baby. It's not my birth. It's not my body, but I'm simply listening to this family and gauging what their needs are and then supporting them in that. I think that is very freeing when you realize that, you know, what might be best for me might not be best for this, you know, next person coming along. Mm -hmm. Respecting that and having no ego in that where now you're offended that maybe they've interviewed with you but decided they want to birth in a birthing center instead of with you at home or they want to the hospital is best for them. That's 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 what autonomy is, you know. That yes. is where you want to give somebody as much information as possible so they can come to the best decision for them. So that is really freeing for me. Um I love that aspect of it watching somebody come into their own
1: awareness and then make an informed decision. Speaking of activism. Um, mm-hmm. It's a great way to segue. Mm-hmm. I just love how you just segued into everything that we get <laughs> to talk about. Just flowed. Like um, you are also helping to spearhead a um, uh, a birthing center, the birthing yeah. place. Can yeah. you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: um, one, okay, one second.
1: Okay. One second, lady. Okay.
0: Um, yeah. So, you know, Myla Flores and I have been, um Friends, you know, birth worker companions for many years. And we've always been kind of talking about this idea. And a little over a year ago, we were at a birth together. It was an amazing home birth. And on the way home, we're both like riding this oxytocin wave on the one train, riding uptown. And we were just like, we got to bring this birth center, you know, to fruition. So the idea is to have a birthing center midwifery led. In uh, the Riverdale section of the Bronx, but in addition, having other extension centers um, in other areas that are, you know, quote unquote underserved. Um, So, Yonkers, Mount Vernon, um, South Bronx. And in the interim of getting this center, you know, that is not only gonna be a birthing center, but a healing center as well. So, we will have, you know, all types of um, holistic practitioners there in one space so that people don't have to get their care piecemeal. Right. But we also plan on having mobile units that until the, you know, places complete and up to code, because there are a lot of, you know, hoops to jump through to get a bigger yes. free led birth center in place. But um, we will have mobile units that will be able to go to these communities in the interim to make sure that they're still getting information about the birth center, information about home birth and the hospitals in their area but then also getting um, that care in the meantime as well. Um, so, yeah, that's a project that we've been working on, um, along with Bruce McIntyre, mm-hmm. who, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but he um, was Amber Rose Isaac's partner. Yes. Amber mm-hmm. passed away in April. Um, so we've collaborated on a few things. Um, we, Birds from the Earth already had a Access to Homebirth Scholarship um, in place, but we renamed that in Amber's honor be able to um, offset the cost for um, hiring home birth midwives because the cost is often a barrier. It's not covered the same way that a hospital birth is covered by insurance. So when somebody is a great candidate for home birth, really desires to birth their baby at home, has found qualified midwives to do so, but now the insurance is an issue, they can apply for a scholarship and we can offset the cost so that they can still birth at home. And so far we've helped 11 families um, and, can, oh, that's wonderful. and can continue to help more. So, yeah, so it's just about bringing more resources because we know uh-huh. that everybody is not going to want a birth at home, yeah. but many people do not want a birth in the hospital. And my, my catchphrase is that the same way there's a liquor store in every other corner in the hood, that's how we should have access to birth centers and, you know, clinics and, you know, quality care. That is exactly. truly essential. Exactly. And if there's one thing that the pandemic has had us debating, what is essential and what's not, I would say that birth
1: centers and, you know, quality care is, is essential. <laughs> that is wonderful. I want to be mindful of your time because I know you have yes, another appointment. Yes, I do have somebody it is, coming yes. out. Yeah, like, so <laughs> I, I am going to have to have you back. That's just, oh, the, you know, oh, I'm, you. I'm definitely going to have you back. I'm just looking at the time and I'm like, yeah, I think this would be a good place for us to stop because okay. I want to be mindful of, you know, I okay, could go absolutely. on. I've really enjoyed talking <laughs> to you. I love these conversations. I can't wait to meet you in person. Oh, um, yeah. And then, yes, because I definitely want to hear about, I'll have to have a different segment where you can talk about your birth stories, <laughs> and the different, because I usually oh, yeah. like to end yeah. the segment with that. And I'd yeah. love to hear about them. I love birth stories. about well, I do love, yeah. you know,
0: well, I'll just say briefly that my two hospital births are definitely what lent me then having three amazing home births. Um, yes. And I, as much as, I say if I had known better, I probably would have had all five of them at home. I don't regret those experiences because it definitely shaped the birth birth that I am today. So everything happens for
1: a reason. Definitely. That is so true. And thank you so much for being on. Thank you for being open and candid. I really love that. I'm going to include in our show notes where people can find information on how they can support your organization as well as the birthing center to get the word out. Because I, I I, like you, believe that women need to have choice on where they give birth and that that's where it starts. so I truly I appreciate you. you thank you I can't thank wait thank you I appreciate you, you too bye. have a beautiful rest of the day thank you bye. you too you too okay. alright bye. bye hola hello everyone I like to include birth stories at the end of each podcast. Today, we will be hearing from Rini, a mom of two. Each of her birth experiences were vastly different. She explains her vaginal birth with her son and then her C-section with her daughter. I think it's important to hear Rini's perspective on having a vaginal birth and C-section, which she handled with grace. Rini, good morning. Good morning. Would you tell us about your birth story?
2: Sure. And that it's great to have the chance to talk with you and share uh, my birth stories. Um, So my son, James was born in 2015. Um, I was in my early to mid thirties and I knew that I wanted to have um, a natural birth or that was my goal. And I, you know, my mom had four children and all of us, um, she had, you know, natural unmedicated vaginal births. And I just, you know, really felt that that was something I hoped to do if it was possible. Um, I wanted to have a midwife. I wanted to have, you know, give birth in a birthing center if possible. And I think a lot of my mother's experience had informed you know, my goals and the way I thought about birth and, you know, just to share a little bit about her, she was, um, or she is an immigrant. Uh, she's from Guyana, um, and came over in the seventies. And then, um, when she had my older brother, um, in the early eighties, um, didn't have real access to good care and, um, was treated really badly at, you know, free health clinics, was a low income woman, and um, and was still able to have a natural birth. But really, um, it was a challenging experience. And then as she um, gained experience and was able to make her own choices, was able to um, give birth with for me and my younger brothers with midwives and with a more supportive environment. And she always talked about, you know, when she was pregnant with my older brother, how she um, was humiliated and told she was gaining too much weight and really, you know, treated in, in a really terrible way. And how with uh, with us, the younger ones, she was able to really um, be empowered and have um, a midwife who was supportive and who helped her have the experience she wanted to have. So that is kind of what informed me um, coming into, you know, being pregnant and getting ready to give birth. I was also aware, aware of the... Um, really terrible uh, racial inequities in maternal mortality. And as a Black woman, um, I knew it was even more important for me to be informed and for me to take charge of my experience um, to make sure that I would be able to um, have the kind of birth experience that I wanted and be healthy um, and for me and my child to come out on the other side um, healthy and whole. So um you know I got pregnant and we were living in New York City and um I had thought about where I wanted to give birth and I um learned about the birthing center um again that was kind of informed by my mom because she'd given birth to my youngest brother in a, in a birthing mm-hmm. center and um and that was cool like we'd gone to go there as the older kids and see the experience And so I said, I want to try a birthing center. And so um, at that time, there was one at St. Luke's Roosevelt. Um, And so I um, kind of looked for midwives who delivered there. And that was very near my apartment. Um, So it kind of all came together really nicely. And I connected with a midwifery practice um, that delivered and that used the birthing center. Um, I went to all of the classes to use the birthing center. I was having a healthy pregnancy. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, um, you know, to really have the kind of experience I want to have, it's important for me to have a doula, to have someone who can, um, lead me through the process, who can kind of be my partner, um, along. And I do have uh, a husband and a partner. Um, and I think the reason that having a doula was very important to me, in addition to having, um, my husband there was because, um, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know anything about um, mm-hmm. childbirth, and he's very squeamish. So he made it clear from the beginning that it was important to him to be kind of supporting me um, through being with me and talking with me and and holding my hand, but that he would not be, um, you know, catching the baby or cutting the cord. <laughs> yeah. He was concerned that if he cut the cord or caught the baby, he might. Um, pass out and and require his own care. So we said, let's make sure you know that he's okay and that I'm okay mm-hmm. and, and and that I want someone who can um, really support me through the through the process and who knows what they're doing. I mean, I yeah. think I had been exposed to doulas because a friend of mine was a postpartum doula, and I, I learned about that first. And then I said, well, what about the birth? And she explained about a birth doula. And you know, I really think that in modern culture, we don't always have. Um, the elders or the folks who can support exactly. you and, and, and teach you. And I really wanted someone who could do that. And my mom offered to be my doula. She said, you don't need a doula. I can do it. And what I will say is that with our, our mothers and people we're very close to often, there's a lot of, um, there are some issues that can come up. And so I thought, let me have someone who I can, you know, explain what I want and do it on my terms. Okay. And, um, and so I started you know, reaching out to people. And I think with my first pregnancy, I reached out, um, around 20 weeks or right, um, right before 20 weeks. And I think that was a little late because I reached out to a lot of people and they were already kind of like booked up. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I started, I was like, where do I start to find a doula? Um, and I started because my midwifery practice had a list of people. And so I just started calling around, um, and, you know, the other thing I would say is most practices these days have multiple providers and you meet with, you know, all the different providers throughout the, um, whether it's an OB practice or a midwifery practice, you meet with different providers and you get whoever's on call. And certainly I understand why that makes sense. Um, but I wanted someone who was going to, who I knew was going to be there, who was going to be yes. there throughout my pregnancy and who was going to be there at my delivery, um, so I, um, you know, it kind of met with a, a number of jewelers. I think I probably met with around five of them. And, you know, I really followed my gut and I really connected with Sasha. Um, and, you know, felt like she kind of had the combination of, um, compassion, practical support, and, um, just kind of we clicked. And so I, um, you know, we, I, we agreed to work together and it was great i think from the beginning to have someone that i could um trust and go to and ask questions and and really that i could be totally um open with and not have you know any um a, any exactly yeah. to really have um an open relationship um so um you know as i prepared for my birth um I, I was a healthy, um, woman. I was having, you know, didn't really have any issues. I started to have some higher, um, blood pressure readings in my visits to the midwives, and they would always kind of have me take a few deep breaths and then the, um, blood pressure readings would go down. So, um, you know, things were going really well. Um, I was aware that I had been born 3 weeks early myself and my my brother had also so that my mom and you know I'm kind of similar to my mom in my build and my um so my body is similar to hers so I thought okay she had you know her children 3 weeks early maybe I you know I might do that too so I was kind of like thought this might happen and then um it was the weekend before Labor Day or Labor Day weekend and um, I really started cleaning up and like getting ready. And I, I said, well, I wonder if this is like nesting, but I would get up like early in the morning and just like, you know, get all the baby clothes ready and get the stroller ready and everything. And, um, and, you know, I did normal stuff that weekend. I went out to dinner in Brooklyn I came back to Manhattan, you know, just, it was, I was very pregnant, but I was kind of comfortable. It was extremely hot. It was probably like a hundred degrees the day before on labor day. And I went uh-huh. to Central Park with my husband. And I remember I wasn't feeling great. Like I felt I didn't have an appetite and I, you know, which was unusual for me. And I just didn't, I didn't feel good. Um, but I thought, well, maybe it's just because it's really hot. Um, and um, I, that the morning after the, the Tuesday after Labor Day, I woke up and, um, and I, something was weird. I kind of didn't feel right. I felt kind of weird. And then I noticed, oh, I feel weird every, you know, every 10 minutes or so. And I said, Oh, this is contractions and like very early labor. And, um, yeah, I started noticing the pattern and it was, it really didn't, it, it wasn't painful. Um, and it was nice to be able to connect with Sasha, let her know what was going on. Um, you know, she said, just hang out at home. I lived at that point, just a block away from the hospital. And so my plan was to you know, stay at home as long as possible. Um, and because of my proximity to the hospital, I was able to do that. Um, and that day, you know, was pretty much a normal day. You know, I just was able to be on my birth ball and, you know, um, walk around the apartment. Um, as the contractions got a little closer, like uh, my husband came home from work so that he could be there. But he kept working at home and, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, ha- happening, but fine. And then as the day wore on, the contractions got a little closer together and a little closer together. And then, you know, Sasha, my doula was in Brooklyn and I think it was like almost like two hours away to get there. So we kind of were like trying to think of like, okay, when should she come? And, um, probably like in the early evening, the contractions got more intense and, and closer together. And so, um, I was kind of like taking a bath and taking a shower and just trying different ways to feel comfortable. I reached out to the midwives as well. And also to Sasha and she said, you know, keep me posted most of the time, you know, labor takes long. So just, you know, you're, you're going to be okay. And, um, and then I think probably around like 6 PM, it got uh, more intense. And this was one of the moments where I'm really grateful for my, um, that um, Sasha was kind of uh, advising me Mm -hmm. because the, um, the midwives, actually, it must have been earlier, because it was when the office was open, maybe it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. And the midwives, uh, the midwife on call said, "Well, why don't you come in so I can um, see how dilated you are. And that, you know, and then um, we can kind of go from there. And I was also very close to the midwife practice. And I, you know, could have walked there. And I, I called Sasha. And I said, Oh, you know, the midwife said I can come in. And she said, I really don't recommend you go in unless they unless they say you have to, which they haven't, and they really couldn't, you know, require you to. Um, she said, like, knowing how much you're dilated really doesn't give any information you could get from, you know, you could dilate very quickly, you know, later stages of labor. So what's the point of going in, you're going to be walking outside, it's 100 degrees, you know, you're going to get it will be stressful for you stressful on your body to do that. Um, just stay home where you're comfortable. And that was, I think, really great advice. Um, And, you know, that's one of the many times I think if I hadn't had a doula, I wouldn't, I would have just said, Oh, great, let me go in. And the midwives, you know, the midwife wanted to know how she wanted to be able to make her own decisions. um, And whether she should go back to I think she lived in Brooklyn, too, whether she should go home and, you know, put her kids to bed. And, And, you know, I understand that. But it was really important for me to have An ally and an advocate who only had my interests in mind, and who could tell me, hey, this doesn't really make sense for you. So I did not go into the office. I'm really grateful. And I'll come back to that later. Um, I just stayed home. And I was with my husband and trying to get comfortable. And then the the labor pains got more intense, they got closer together. And around 6 o'clock, I said, you know, I told my husband, call Sasha and tell her, I think she should come. And you know, at that point, I'd been in in labor less than twelve hours. I think I woke up that day around nine a.m. I woke up late, and so I'd probably been in labor, you know, um, nine hours. And so it wasn't really like I had been in labor a long time, um, but I just felt it was really it was getting intense, and I wanted support. So we said, you know, Sasha, it would be great if you could come. So she came and, you know, it took a while. So we needed to have some lead time. So she came and kind of supported me. Um, I was in a lot of pain. She did some different positions. Um, and I threw up, which I know can happen, but was still surprising. And she helped me clean it up. So she, you know, it was just kind of there. And then um, I was taking a bath. Zach, uh, my husband was with me, and Sasha was doing the dishes. So she also said, you know, she said, you don't want to come home to a a, uh, a, an apartment full of dirty dishes when you have your new baby. So, like, she was helping us just get ready, and I think that's another great thing about doulas is they do whatever you need. And that was a great thing to just be like, let's get this apartment ready to bring home a baby because I was still three weeks before my due date, so I wasn't really, you know, weren't a thousand percent ready. So, um, uh, when I was in the bath, it got really intense, and it was probably about eight or nine p.m. at that point, and I was just like, this is so painful i can't do this anymore is how i felt and um and sasha said okay we can let you know let's go let's go to the hospital and i at that point i really felt like i wanted like an epidural or like pain medication because i just it was just too much it was overwhelming and um we needed to get to the hospital and it was a block away which is short but you know, being in labor and traveling and moving is, is not easy at that point when I was dealing with such intense contractions. So, Sasha helped us. Um, she taught my husband how to support me during contraction. So, we would walk like 10 feet and then stop for a contraction and then walk a few more feet. So, even that, without her, we wouldn't have been able to really get where we were going. Um, so, she helped us. We figured out we got there and we got to the um, uh, labor and delivery triage. And they kind of said, "Oh, you're fine." And even in the triage room, I was doing um, cat cow yoga poses, just trying to keep my body moving <laughs> to be comfortable, just while I was waiting to be admitted to the, um, you know, to labor and delivery or where they take your statistics or whatever in the, in that first um, area. And so I got in there, um, and they took my um, blood pressure, and it was off the charts. It was very high, and you know, they were very concerned and but they said well maybe it's just that you're in labor and then they checked me and i was 10 centimeters so i was basically ready to have the baby at that moment and so you know and at that point they couldn't even give me an epidural it was too late and and sasha said well that's the reason you needed you were in so much pain you were in transition you were basically you know that was the worst part and now you can just like have this baby so the midwife got there um i couldn't even pee they were like we need a urine sample i couldn't do it everything was just like happening so quickly so i think we got to the hospital I don't, you know, around um, maybe 10.30 p.m. And my son was born less than an hour later. Um, wow. So it really happened very quickly, quickly. at that yeah. point. And he um, and I couldn't use the birthing center because my blood pressure was so high. Um, so I ended up, you know, just using um, the regular labor and delivery. Um, and I'll say that it was still a really um. I was glad I was at a hospital that had a birthing center because the nurse I had was a nurse who was used to natural labor. She was used to what I was, you know, going through the noises I was making the, you know, and she wasn't surprised and she was really supportive. So even though I wasn't able to use the birthing center, I think it was still a very positive um, labor and delivery experience there because their staff was used to the birthing center a- approach. Um So, Um, you know, the baby came pretty quick, um, just, uh, after all of that and, you know, the pushing, it was all challenging, but by then I was just happy that it was like going to be over soon. And, um, and, uh, he came out and he was healthy and strong. And then, um, a few minutes after he was born, they came back with my, um, my results from my. Um, all the blood blood work that they had taken because my blood pressure had been high, and it turned out I was having like um preeclampsia, really um severe preeclampsia, which is a a dangerous condition for um for uh pregnant and uh postpartum um moms and so um at that point they said you know this is really you know a problem, and we need to make sure you know, that we're going to have to monitor you closely. You have to go to what's called the recovery room. And, um, so, um, it was great to have Sasha there throughout, um, all of this just to be kind of a a support and and a help. Um, and she actually was the one when I was delivering who suggested the position, um, that, you know, that allowed me to, to deliver James, um, like the, the nurse was like, Oh, go on your side. Or, you know, everybody was saying, try all these different things. And she said, why don't you try on your back, which isn't always what works. But for me, that's what worked. I went, I was on my back and that's what helped the baby come out. So, you know, I think just having someone there who's been there, who knows how to try different things, who says like, you know, who can just kind of advocate for you was huge. You can hear Aubrey in the background. So (laughs) we'll get to her in a, in a few minutes. Um, so, um, So afterwards, I had to go to the recovery room. And that is another place where having an advocate made a big difference because they were telling me that I couldn't keep my baby with me. And I really wanted to keep my baby. That was very important to me. I wanted to breastfeed. And I said, I really want the baby. And, and Sasha was just kind of like, keep saying it, keep telling them. And, you know, and it's interesting because I think in a medical setting, people just tell you what they think is a rule when it's just what they're used to doing. Exactly. And so everybody kept saying, oh, you can't have the baby because, you know, there's not enough room and you can't have your partner with you. There's, and I was just like, I want my baby with me. I want my partner with me. And, you know, and then that's what happened. I got, you know, James was able to be there and Zach. um, But I think they just, they're just used to how things work. And so I think really having someone who say, no, you can keep pushing, you can keep advocating for yourself uh, made a big difference. So that night, Sasha went back to our apartment and rested. My husband stayed with me. And then in the morning or at some point, they switched so he could go rest and she could stay with me. So I think that was a big difference, too. Knowing that we were going to be in the hospital for a few days, um, it was important for us to make sure we had my husband could get at least a little bit of rest. Um, The recovery room is really challenging. It's people who have had C-sections or who need to be monitored. And there were like four or six. There were a lot of women in there and the babies and partners. And it was just like a really chaotic space. Not really, I wasn't really able to rest there. Um, so, you know, the remainder of my hospital experience was pretty challenging um, because they were, there was all the constant monitoring for the um, pre-eclampsia. preeclampsia. They wouldn't let me eat at all, which was terrible because I was really hungry. Um, the midwives, I think, really weren't able to follow my case at that point because it was kind of a more severe situation. So it was the OBs on call that were monitoring me, and I didn't have a relationship with them. So that was also very challenging. Um, So I think for me, you know, like my labor and delivery was was really positive and what I wanted. And then my post, you know, post delivery, the um, very early postpartum experience was really challenging. Um, And throughout that time, it was great to be able to Um, have Sasha as a resource. She actually, I think the next day had to go to a different birth. I think she might've gone right from our birth to another birth, which is crazy. Um, (laughs) and yeah, it was just like wild. And, um, but she was still, you know, available. She got me started on breastfeeding. Um, and then like the, the few weeks following the delivery were really challenging for me. And she was, she just remained a support and remained a person who could, I could just kind of say like, Hey, what's going on? Um, how do we approach this? Like just kind of somebody who's been through it. So I think we just had a fantastic experience with having a doula. And it was so funny because when we got pregnant the second time, um, some people said, well, this is your second time. Like you don't need a doula. And we said, well, of course we need a doula. Like now we know how important it is to have a doula. Like we're not going to then go back to not having one. Like we definitely know we need one. So, um, when I got pregnant with Aubrey, um, we said, "You know we definitely need a doula, And our first thought was to have Sasha because we would worked with her before, um, but she was no longer working as a doula. and as you know, it's a very um you know demanding job. Yeah. so she um she said she had moved on from that and um, and so she gave me some names, and she gave me your name, Annette, and um, it was great to meet you, and we clicked and you know, you were uh, in the neighborhood, which at that point, um, because things had moved so quickly last time, we felt like, well, things might move really quickly this time. And we um, so we were really happy to meet you and happy to know that you were nearby and kind of share our plans. I had decided to use an OB because um, I was concerned if I had preeclampsia again, I wanted someone who could um, support me, you know, through that experience as well. Um, And the midwives really weren't um, allowed to kind of be my care provider um, because of the complications. So I decided I wanted an OB. I found an OB that um, was very supportive and understood that I wanted a natural birth. Um, and, uh, then at my 36 week, um, ultrasound, um, Aubrey, um, was breech. And, you know, I shared that with you and we brainstormed about it, talked about things we could do. Um, and I tried a a bunch of remedies or a bunch of, you know, ways to help turn her and, uh, positions and, you know, drinks and whatever and and i did a version which was um a pretty intense experience Mm -hmm. um and it didn't work she didn't turn and she um so she stayed breech and so i you know needed to have a c-section in new york city i don't believe any hospital will um deliver a Breach baby vaginally, though I, I understand it's possible in other parts of the country, but not well, in there,
1: Yeah. There's one there's one hospital in Queens and one doctor. But mm-hmm. it's like the stars and the moon have to lie and everything has to be perfect. And it's a city hospital. So
2: Oh wow. Yeah. yeah and I just That's felt at that, that point thing. like mm-hmm. I was also nervous myself and, you know, so I said like we tried the version. You know, the one thing I would say about the version, the experience of having that, is that the um The doctor, like they weren't able to schedule it quickly. So it was on, you know, when I learned she was breached, it was at my 36 week ultrasound. And I called right away to try to schedule the version and I couldn't schedule it for a week. And then when I got there and the doctor tried, it didn't work. He said, Oh, I wish you would come in earlier. And I said, Like, I've been trying to come in for a week. So I really hope that, you know, I said, Like, you guys really need to work on this because I tried to get in here right away because the baby is just growing at that point. And, you know, I think the baby was just too big to turn and was kind of lodged where she was in my in my body at that point. Um, so, you know, some people said, well, you had a C-section, you didn't need a doula. And actually, as, as you know, Annette, it was great to have a doula for a C-section as well, um, just to kind of walk us through the experience and to have, you know, you just need more than one person supporting you and somebody who's been through it. And I think, you know, as we approached the C-section, you had great advice and help. And having a second child is a different experience as well, because you have to figure out how to support your first child who is also going through a really you know significant life change. And so like that morning for my C-section, you went with me to the hospital and my husband stayed and got my son ready for school. And that was important to have someone who could support our son and let him have some, you know, Some semblance of his normal routine, while you, you know, help get me ready for um, a really, you know, big day for 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 our family as well. Um, And then at the hospital, I think having um, your advice and kind of your support and knowing what to do was really helpful. And um, and then after the baby is born, like the baby needs someone to support them, and the mom needs someone. So I think having a doula to support me was so important along with, you know, that my husband could really be with the baby. And one just small example was, you know, uh, Aubrey was born. She was very big. She was nine pounds, which, you know, isn't that big, but compared to my, my son had been six and a half pounds. Exactly. And I think right. that might've been why, um, why she wouldn't move. You know, she was kind of like, she was big and I'm, I'm petite. And I'm only five, three. And my husband is six, five. So we are very different sizes. So I say like Aubrey was his baby. She was like basically a a Zach size baby in in my body. So she was kind of like, you know, stuck in there. Um, So um, after she was born, you know, you helped us get started with breastfeeding, all of that. That was great. Um, But the room we were in after the C-section is very cold. It's freezing. And, you know, then she got cold and they were very concerned why she's so cold. And I was like, well, maybe you shouldn't make this room so cold. But by the time they, um noted that she was cold and she wasn't warming up. they had to take her to the um it wasn't the neonatal ICU but it was the step down from that yes. um, so PICU. the pick you, yeah. yeah, so they had to take um, Aubrey and for me it was really important that my husband stayed with her the whole time and you know that there was someone an advocate for her, you know, and I just... Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, you know, nurses and doctors and health workers are doing their best, but I really wanted someone who could be there with the baby to make sure um, she was advocated for and that she was getting the care we wanted her to have and that she was brought back right away because I wanted to be with her. So at that point, my husband went with her and you stayed with me. And that was, again, very important um, to have you there. Um, and I remember when we moved, they moved me from the recovery room to, you um, The room that I was going to be in, um, the postpartum room. And I was still recovering from the C section and I, you know, really couldn't tell up from down. Um, And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Annette, but we got to my room and I threw up right away. Like I was just like so nauseous and you caught my throw up. So that was one of the many um, really helpful things. But it was just like there's so much going on Mm -hmm. and you don't even know up from down. You've just been through this major surgery. And so I think. You know, having um, having you there with me was was so helpful um, throughout that day. And, you know, even just, again, talking to the, the nurses and the doctors and saying, well, when can we get the baby back? When can we, um, you know, really start breastfeeding again? When can I eat so that I can start feeling better? Um, all of those things. It was really critical to have you. And I think you stayed a very long time that day. And it was really, really helpful um, throughout the day to have you there. So, you know, I think when I look at these two extremely different birth experiences, one at 37 weeks, um, by, you know, unmedicated vaginal birth and one at 40 weeks, um, with a C-section. And in both experiences, I think having a doula was just critical to having the kind of experience that I want to have. Um, and, you know, no birth is going to be the same as, as another one. They're all so different, just like every child is different. Every baby is different. Um, but I think, what I learned um, after my first one and with the second one was that, you know, having a doula is really something that can help you have the the most positive experience that you can. And um, and so thank you for for helping us and for supporting me through that. Oh,
1: you're welcome. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. It really was.
2: Wow, yeah, was so great. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. Is there anything else that would be helpful for me to um, to talk about? I've kind of talked uh, at length I about think, Yes.
1: No, that was great. You covered everything. Um, and most importantly, you know, like the oh, entire reason why for the first time, most people think having a doula is necessary. And then the second time thinking, yes, no, of course, the second time is just as necessary. And yes, even in a C-section, it's necessary to have your doula, I think is an important, uh, it's important for people to hear and understand that, yeah, you could be supported in both ways and they're both valid. And, you know, I think a lot of times most people just go into thinking, oh, if I had a, um, vaginal birth for my first, then, my second will most definitely be a vaginal birth and not really think about the C-section. A lot of people go into, that's not going to happen to me. So to hear, hear your experience from that perspective is also, I think, eye-opening for people to really get an understanding of if that were to happen, I could still be supported through the process. So yeah, I appreciate you covered everything. Thank you so much for sharing your story. That was great.
2: Sure. Happy to do it. And absolutely. I think um, from a unmedicated vaginal birth to a C-section, um, different size babies, different hospitals. Um, a doula is a critical support person, no matter um, where or how you're having your baby. So, um, so I'm I'm really happy that I had that support. I'm grateful for it. I think it should be available to everyone. Um, and you know, you see studies show that it really does make a difference. difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Definitely. yeah.
1: Definitely. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much, and I'll definitely let you know when we're going to release this episode. Right now, um, episode one is is on, um, is up um, on spot. I'll send you the link on Spotify oh, cool. and Apple Music, um, Apple Great. Podcast. So they're up. But I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, sure great honor to hear your story again sure thank you thank you too kiss the little ones for me and hopefully when you know this is all done I'll see you in the neighborhood yes exactly
2: (laughs) all right Annette take care
1: you too thank you so much Gracias. Thanks for listening to The Clear Birth Podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find me on Instagram at The Clear Birth Podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can reach me at theclearbirthpodcast at gmail.com. Adios. Hasta luego. Goodbye. Until next time.